Thanks, Elizabeth. Alrighty. Um, hey, before we get started, just interesting, turn to the people around you. Do you think Rahab did right or wrong by lying to the soldiers, saying, nah, 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 the, the spies, they're not here, they've, they've left? That was a clear lie, right? Uh, what is the ethics of lying in that situation? Have a quick, you've got two minutes to solve this ethical dilemma. Is it right to lie when the Nazis come to your house effectively? That is the question. Turn to the people beside you, around you, and uh, have a quick go at this ethical dilemma. Alrighty, alrighty. Let's let's see a show of hands. Rahab did right by lying. The lie was justified. Okay, There's a couple of people a bit worried about outing themselves as being pro-lying. Who do, who thinks no? It was wrong for right, very black and white characters down here. Uh, and who is not sure? Okay, fantastic. I, I'm in the not sure category, actually, uh, but we're going to come to that in just a second. What? I'm, make make, I'm, I'm willing to make the decision. Uh, yes, I am. Hey, let's pray, and then we're going to have a look at this remarkable story. Father, we ask now that you give us eyes to see uh, the wonders of your grace in this story about this remarkable woman, Rahab, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the very first thing that we read in the New Testament is a genealogy of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 is the first chapter in the New Testament. And here we read of uh, the lineage, Jesus' family lineage. And the lineage, it establishes Jesus' place in history, that he is not a mythological character. He is not just some kind of idea. He is a real person who lived a real life in real history. That is the claim of Christianity. But more than that, it shows us, because if you're writing the lineage of the awaited saviour, you would be expecting an esteemed bloodline. But Jesus' bloodline was not made up of sinless, wealthy, notable, celebrated people. His family lineage was made up of real people with real sin, uh, who had real struggles, and who had real faith. And for me, what's surprising in the lineage is the mention of these five real women in the storyline of Jesus. Like the rest of their family, their life and their stories were real. Uh, and over the next coming weeks, as we lead up to Christmas, we're looking at the stories of each one of these five women 
to understand something in a little bit more detail, in a little bit more three dimensions, why Jesus had to come into the world. And today we come to the character Rahab, second week in this story. Rahab's story comes in the book of Joshua. And uh, the story begins with Joshua, the leader of the army of Israel, sending spies into the land of Canaan. This is what we read, Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. Now the context is Moses has died. Moses was the leader of the Jewish people. uh, And um, he had led them out of the land of uh, Egypt under the slavery of Pharaoh. God used Moses to lead his people out from Egypt and bring them into the promised land. Uh, which they failed to walk into because they failed to trust God. They rebelled against him and God judged them, punished them. They spent 40 years wandering in the desert and now 40 years later a new generation has arisen. Moses had died. The new generation is led by Joshua and they're about to enter the promised land and the entrance to the promised land happens at Jericho. The people of Israel, they're camped on the eastern side of the Jordan River and they're heading over into Jericho. The land on the west, uh, down uh, Hebron all the way north, up north, that is the land God promised Israel. But the way to get in the land is to cross the Jordan River and the first city you come to is the city of Jericho. And it was a very armed city. It stood tall, defended like a sentinel, barring access to the land. This was the land the Lord God had promised to give the nation of Israel. But it was occupied. And it was occupied by many, many people. And this group of people, they were a people of deep, willful sin. And their sin rose before the face of God. And, uh, and the Canaanites, they'd become so cruel, so violent... Uh, they would wor- part of their worship of idols was to offer up their babies on the altar. They'd kill them, slaughter them, and burn them up as offerings to their false gods. And for centuries, God's patience held back his anger. But the time had gone, God's patience had ended, and Israel had been wandering for 40 years, and this was the time God would judge the people of Canaan. He was going to send in his own people, the people of Israel, to judge the people for their sin, and that judgment would be death by military conquest. And if you have a problem with that, like many of us do, I'd love to discuss that with you later. And so Joshua, they're about to enter the land. God sent them into the land, but before they go into the land, Joshua sends some spies to cross over the Jordan River and enter the city of Jericho. And this is what we read. So they went, the spies, and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab. And here we meet our character. And they stayed with her. So Rahab was a prostitute. She sold her body for money, and she belonged to this wicked nation who worshipped pagan gods and like all her people she was helpless against the coming storm of God's wrath she was helpless against her own sin and her own brokenness she was helpless against the destruction that would be brought against 
per city and they would be wiped off the planet of the face of earth. And, uh, and it just so happened that that's her situation. She's absolutely helpless. But to her door, some Hebrew spies come and knock. And they enter a house, the house of a brothel of all places. Now, we may suspect, you know, we suspect the spies are somehow deviating from the mission at this point, right? They are on a mission from God. And the first place they end up is a brothel. And uh, now there are lots of opinions about this. Some people, I was reading commentaries on this. Some people argue, well, it was a pretty good place for spies to hide. You know, you're in a brothel, no one... Everyone wants to be anonymous. Uh, You avoid eye contact. It's a great place to hide. But, you know, the more I reflect on this, the more I think these guys are totally sus. We're told they enter a house and they stay there. They don't hide there. They're staying there. And verse 2, the king of Jericho uh, was told, when he was told, look, some of the Israelites, they have come here tonight to spy out the land. So they're immediately recognized, which seems to suggest they weren't covered up, they were uncovered, if you know what I mean. So what were they doing in a brothel? That's the question. And in the end, God actually, he ignores our questions. That's what I want to know. Were they right? What were they doing there? But God actually, he doesn't want us focused on that because ultimately it's not because they were horny or because they needed a place to hide. It's because God wanted to save a woman and her entire family. And this is what this story, it's so beautiful, because Joshua thinks he's sending out military kind of spies into the land to work out their strategy, and God's like, that's not what you're going in for. You're going in to save a woman. But no sooner as they arrive, they're found and they're reported, the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the man who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the land. So notice how this city is in a heightened state of alert. Everyone's afraid, every visitor is scrutinized and questioned, and they are terrified at the prospect of invasion. They report any suspicious movement immediately, They are very much aware that on the other side of the river was camped a nation who were known throughout the country as the people who escaped from Egypt by the mighty and outstretched hand of the Lord their God. And in great fear, the king of um, uh, uh, in great fear, the king of uh, Jericho calls to Rahab and says, "Bring out the man." And at this point, you would think that all is lost for these spies, that they're about to be dragged out and executed in the street. But instead, we see a mighty woman of God stand up in history with the courage of a lioness. For before these men come knocking, we're told Rahab, um, Rahab had taken the two men and hidden them. And so when the soldiers come knocking, she says to them, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So she doesn't pretend they didn't come. 
that would make them suspect her. Rather, she says, this is a place where men come and go as they please. They came, they went, but secretly she hid them and lied about their whereabouts. Now, is that lie justified? God commands, he has a very clear command that we're not to bear false witness against our neighbour. And that command, Jesus teaches us, falls under God's wider purpose that we love our neighbour. And here Rahab is confronted with a moral dilemma. Does she protect the lives of these men who are her neighbour? Or does she give the truth to these other neighbours who come asking her where these men are? And so she has a real life ethical dilemma. She has two competing obligations. Love for the Hebrew spies and love to use her language in a way that tells the truth. Now, our words are very important because the quality of our relationships depends upon the words that we speak, and in order for me to have a good relationship with you, I need to be able to trust that what you say is true. Words sustain and deepen relationships. They build trust between people, and that is what God wants more than anything else. But what happens when people come seeking to harm, to kill, to destroy, and, to, and they're asking you to use truth as an accomplished as an accomplice to their evil. Well, Rahab chooses what I think Jesus would call the weightier, the, the weightier aspects of the law. She sides with the spies. She spies with their God. Uh, she distances herself from this corrupt, evil city, and she throws her lot in with the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, the reason I'm still undecided is because we must never justify lies. Justifying lies comes very, very easy to us. All of us, you know, uh, Jesus says, um, uh, when we lie, we speak Satan's native language. And we love to lie because we love what's good for us. So we must never justify our lies. And it's interesting, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lied about his plot to assassinate uh, Hitler, he lied about it, but he never justified it. He said, look, I don't know what to do. All I know is it's right that Hitler dies, and I'm going to have to lie to do that, but I'm not going to justify my lies because I don't want to become the person who sits easy with using his words in an untrue way. I always find that helpful, but it doesn't actually solve the dilemma. <laughs> Wrong to lie, but still she did it, and it was probably the right thing to do. Anyway, there's a little bit of an aside. So she does lie, and what will the men at her door do? Will they come search her house? Will they find her out? Because that very much is what could happen. No, the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan, and as soon as the pursuers had gone, the gate was shut. Now, the gate being shut is bad news because that means everyone is shut out of the city, but also if you're in the city, you're shut in the city. So now she is in the same situation as the spies. If they're found, her life is at risk as well. But Rahab comes to the men on the roof and she shares with them, not her body as a prostitute, but she shares with them her personal testimony. 
And this is beautiful. Verse 9, she says, I know, I know, hear her conviction here. Hear what she believes. I know that the Lord has given you this land. And what she goes on to say forms one of the very longest uninterrupted speeches by a woman in the entire Bible. And it is a wonderful speech, a confession of faith by a woman who had no church, no Bible, no background in godliness or morality. She should have gone down cursing with the rest of Jericho, but instead she trusts the Lord, the God of Israel, whom she has heard about, who has rescued Israel from their slavery in Egypt. One writer says that her idols were incapable of rescuing her from her occupation, no doubt she wanted out of prostitution, but there was no way out of it, no other way of earning an income. But now she hears of the true God who has rescued his people from slavery and she thinks, surely he can rescue me. And so she says, I know that the Lord has given you this land. And she says that, notice, before Israel has even stepped foot in Canaan. They're two spies are hiding in fear of being captured and killed. And yet Rahab has the conviction that the promise of God about the land are true and will come to pass even though it all looks very uncertain right now. That's what faith is. Martin Luther says faith is a living, daring confidence in God so sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God that you could stake your life on the promises of God. And that is exactly what Rahab is doing in this chapter. Her life is under threat by harboring these spies, but she knows the Lord has given the people of Israel this land and so she acts with daring confidence in God. It's amazing. So somehow the promise God had made to his people had come to her knowledge and she, notice she speaks about God, not in general. She uses the personal name of God, which God had given Moses in the wilderness. Do you remember that? Um, so here we go. Uh, in our English Bibles, it's translated, she says, she calls out, the Lord has given you this land. But that word Lord translates a, uh, a Hebrew word, Adonai, which is the word the Jewish people gave to God because um, the Lord God gave them the name Yahweh uh, four Hebrew capital letters, Yod, Hey, Wow, Hey. And the Jewish people were so careful in using the name of God that they refused to say it. And so every time the word Yahweh comes up, the personal name of God in the Hebrew Scriptures, instead of saying that word, they said the word Adonai, which means the English word Lord. So every time you read in the Bible that the word Lord in capital letters, really you're reading the personal name God gave for himself to Moses. So here is this woman. It's not some generic knowledge of some abstract God. No, no, no. She is throwing what she knows is the Lord, the name God gave Moses, that God, that's the one she's put her trust in. Now imagine this, right? You're a spy. You're hiding out in a foreign city. 
You go for some R&R to a brothel, right? And so there you are, you're discovered. The prostitute hides you upstairs. The king's guards come knocking on the door, you're hiding upstairs, and finally hear some footsteps up, and you think, oh no, crap, what's gonna happen? They've discovered us. And then they pull off the flax of wheat, and there standing before you is Rahab, not the spies. And she comes and she says, hey, I believe in the Lord, the Lord Yahweh, that he's given you this land. Now, that is the last person that you would ever think in the world who would believe in your God. She's your enemy. She lives in a a city that worships idols. She's a prostitute. She's taken you in for the night. They're a client sitting in a room downstairs and yet she comes to you and she says, hey, I didn't grow up as a Christian, but after working in this brothel for many years, I heard about the Lord your God. I believe in him. I've thrown my life upon him. I've put my trust in him and I've turned from my old way of life. Wouldn't that be remarkable if you were those spies? You wouldn't be thinking, you'd be, you know, you'd be thinking, God, how do you do this? How have you broken into her life? And if you'd realize that, you'd realize God is certainly going to break through these walls of this city. And so you listen to her share, and this is what she tells you. She says that great, a great fear has fallen on her people so that all who live in this country are melting with fear because of you. Why? Uh, why are people so afraid? Well, here is a group of wandering goat herders without a city of their own. I mean, even the people of Israel, they don't back themselves. Why are the Canaanites so afraid? Well, she tells them why they're afraid. We have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. That's what causes their hearts to melt. You know, the people of Israel, that's their story. But they forgot it. But she hears this story and she is amazed by it. And you know, it's interesting. People who've just become Christians, often they're amazed at what God's done in saving them, in giving his son. And yet the longer you're a Christian, the more you just go, oh, yeah, whatever, what, yeah, okay, yeah, Jesus came at Christmas, died at Easter, what, whatever. And it's interesting, the, longer you're, the more you're familiar with something, the more you take it for granted. But the people of uh, Jericho, they don't take it for granted. They've heard what the Lord God did, and they are shaking in terror. He is fighting for his people. And notice Rahab, she traces their victory back, not to their inherent military superiority. Israel, they weren't superior. They were camping in tents. They had no weapons. And the way they'll destroy this city is simply by walking around it, singing some songs. So she hears of a God who can rescue people in the darkest places, in the most severe trials, and she turns to that God. She says, I'm in a dark place. Save me. And then, right at the end, she said, hey, when we heard of all of this, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. In one statement, she rejects all of her idols, 
all of her old gods and she confesses that the Lord alone is the true God. But her faith doesn't stop there. Rahab is prepared to act, for faith without action is dead. She risks her life, turns from her background, she, li- she risks being charged as a traitor, and she does everything she can to help out these spies because she trusts the true and living God. Now, is that true of your faith? Yeah, yeah, you're here in church, right? So probably you believe something about God. Does your belief in God ever translate into actions? Because if it doesn't, you don't truly believe in him. She believes and therefore she acts. And all true believers act. And so Rahab, she believes, she acts. Her future now depends on the Lord, so she casts herself on him and his people for mercy. Verse 12, she says, Now then, please swear by the Lord that you will show kindness to me and my family, because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother, my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Whereas her city continues to fight and resist the Lord, Rahab turns to him and her faith is not in vain. The spies assure her, verse 14, our lives for your lives. If you don't tell what we're doing, we'll treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. And so Rahab plans their escape. Verse 15, she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. And while hanging on the rope, the spies say back to her, This oath you made us swear this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you've tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you've brought your father, mother, brothers, family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads and we will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood be on our head if a hand is laid upon them. She says, yep, agree with that. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. This scarlet cord hanging from a window in the wall of Jericho, it was the continuing evidence of her faith in the Lord God. So long as that cord was displayed for the people of Israel to see, she was safe. It proved that her hope was not in the walls of Jericho, nor in the strength of her people, but in the Lord and his mercy and kindness toward a sinner like her. The spies, they go back to Joshua three days later in a roundabout way and they come to Joshua and this is what they say. The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. That's the words of Rahab to them. She's just passing on her words to them. Rahab's faith, her conviction that what God said was true Her faith had bolstered the spies' own faith, giving them great confidence that the Lord their God truly was giving them this land. 
Now, not long, not long after this, the storm comes. You can read about it in chapter 6. Yahweh, the Lord God, threw down the walls of Jericho without Israel lifting so much as a finger. He punishes the people of that city by destroying them with military conquest. But Rahab's house was saved, all her people from the violence. And chapter 6, verse 25, the end of this story. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. She ends up marrying Tamar's grandson and she ends up giving birth to Boaz who'll end up married to Ruth and we're going to look at that story next week. Great, great, great stories these, aren't they? All right, now what do we learn from this story? Three things to wrap up. First one is, you know, this story, it shows us why Christmas is necessary. Her story is included in the genealogy of Jesus. Why? Because God wants us thinking the arrival of Jesus into the world has something to do with this woman, Rahab. So what do we learn from this story about why Christmas is necessary? Well, the story of Rahab, it's the story of God saving a woman and her family. Although Joshua viewed this as a military expedition, it was clear that that's not what God had sent them there for. He had sent them to the, the house of a brothel. Why? To save this woman. Salvation is the story of the entire Bible. And it's what Christmas is all about. Rahab was helpless against the coming storm of God's judgment. She was helpless in her sin. She belonged to a city of destruction. And you and I, likewise, we are helpless in the face of the storm of God's judgment, which will come one day. We are helpless in our sin, and we belong to a city of destruction. All of us are helpless, but God comes in the person of Jesus, to save us. And rather than the scarlet cord being our salvation, it is the scarlet blood of the baby sent into the world, which is the sign of our salvation. The spies say, if you save us, we'll save you. But the Lord Jesus says, hey, why don't I not be saved? I'll give my life up so that you can have life itself. In Christ, God sent his son into the world to give us life so that those who put their trust in him would be saved. If God perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If God had perceived our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent a politician. If God had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent a doctor, but... He perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation and rebellion from God, and he sent a saviour. That's what Christmas is about, God coming into the world to save us. Salvation is a big deal in Christianity. And yet, here's the problem. I rarely hear Christians talk about salvation anymore. I hear us talking about, oh, come to Jesus and you'll find your meaning in life, you'll find hope, you'll find joy. But what about you'll be saved? 
Because that's what this story teaches. That the judgment of God will fall on human sin and unless we've received mercy by asking for it and turn from our sins, we are not saved. You know, one of the great movies of 2022 was this movie, Don't Look Up, with um, Meryl Streep, Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence. Who's seen it? Okay, maybe half of us. Uh, It's a very funny story about the end of the world. Uh, it's not one of those typical end of the world type stories. Uh, it's, it's about um, some scientists played by Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio. They return from a field trip having accidentally discovered a large comet directly headed for Earth, which unless they blow up with nuclear weapons all of the earth is going to blow up as this comet hits. And so they start sharing this message of this coming day of doom with the world and no one is interested in their message. They go to the President of the United States and the President, played by Meryl Streep, says, oh, this doesn't fit my message this month. Right, let's just delay this. And they're like, it's coming for us. And, uh, and Meryl Streep's like, no, no, we'll deal with it later. They go on um, morning TV you know, the picture of just plastic niceness, right? And they come on and they're sharing, our world, is going, our world has six months, we have six months to live. Like destructions, we need to do something about this now. And, uh, and Kate Blanchett plays, you know, your typical morning uh, talk show host. And she goes, this is a little bit negative for morning TV. And she's like the bom- blonde bimbo who's just, you know, ignores the negative. And Jennifer Lor- Lawrence, she just goes hysterical. And she then becomes known as the hysterical one. Don't listen to anything she's got to say. And obviously... This movie, it's an allegory for the lack of action that our world is putting into dealing with climate change. It's a climate change allegory. Uh, Now is the time to do something about climate change. Disaster's coming unless we do something now. But really, it's also an allegory for the gospel. Because the message of the Bible is that death is coming for all of us. And after death, is judgment. We will give an answer to God for the life we've lived. But Jesus offers us salvation from judgment if we would turn to him and turn away from our sins. But people, just as in this movie, are too distracted by enjoying life. People don't like hearing negative things. And so they hear the message of Jesus, oh, turn from your sins, otherwise there's judgment. Oh, I don't like that. Never mind, it may be true. I don't like that. I just prefer to live my happy, distracted life. And as a result, they're unprepared for the coming day of doom. This story teaches that Christmas is about salvation. Are you saved? It's no more important question that anyone could ask. Are you right with God? And you get right with God not by coming to church, but by throwing yourself on his mercy, saying, I don't deserve this. Please save me. That's what Rahab says to the Lord, the true God. So that's the first thing this story teaches. Christmas is necessary because judgment is coming and Jesus the Savior offers us peace. The second thing this story teaches is how to respond rightly to Christmas. Salvation comes always to the people who ask for it. 
And the word the Bible uses to describe people who ask for salvation is the word faith, which simply means trust. And Rahab stands as an example to us of who gets saved, the people who put their trust in the Lord God. She doesn't save herself. On the day Jericho is destroyed, she does nothing apart from sit in her house and keep hoping that the scarlet cord will be the sign that she is saved. Now, most people trust God so long as he's fitting their schedule and giving them what they want. But as soon as things stop going to plan, their faith, their trust in God starts to wither and die. But real faith comes alive when things don't go to plan. True faith says, though I can't see the way, I will trust the God. Though I can't see through the mist on the ocean, I'll trust the captain. Though I can't trace his hand in this situation, I'll trust his heart. Though I can't see, I will believe that he has a purpose and a plan in this. I live not by faith, I live by faith, not by sight. And I'll walk as securely through the storm as in the sunshine. And I'll lay myself to rest on the God who doesn't change. That is Rahab. She's in the storm. She's got strong walls around her, armies in her city. Like, if she lived by sight, she'd be like, I'm safe in Jericho. But she lives by faith, trusting the promise of God, and almost distrusts what she can see in the world around her. There's a great um, children's book which was um, written by a friend in America called The Moon is Always Round. Has anyone heard this book? It's about a, a couple who have a, um, a miscarriage or their child is, um, dies in infancy. I can't remember. And um, it's a book, I, I think it's quoting someone else, The Moon is Always Round. And it's a book about how the moon is always round, but oftentimes it looks like a crescent. And even sometimes you can't even see the moon. But the moon is always round. You may not be able to see it. It may only look half of its size and shape, but it is always round. And uh, Johnny Gibson writes this book to talk about how we trust God. Even then, what we know about God can't be seen. We live by faith, not by sight. I, I always enjoy that book. Anyway, that's the second thing this story teaches, how to respond rightly to Christmas. Trust in action. And the third thing that we learn about who is Christmas for, and I'll wrap up on this. Who is Christmas for? It's for everyone. And one of the reasons Rahab is mentioned in Jesus' genealogy is because God wants us to know that you can be part of his story. The Rahab, a prostitute in Jericho, doesn't belong to the people of Israel, that if she can be included, I don't care what you've done. You could be a mob boss. You could be anything. You could have been living in hell for the last 10 years, rebelling against God. But God is offering you salvation today if you turn back to him. The love and grace of God so permeates the Bible that even when you read a genealogy in the Bible, you see of the generous welcome that God has for people weighed down by their sin. As we uh, near the end of the year, you know, I don't know about you, but I start to reflect, how has this year been? The joys, the sorrows, and personally, this story is such a comfort to me. Because you see, here's Rahab. Who is she? She's a nobody. 
She's trapped in a lifestyle she wishes she could escape in a terribly godless city with no hope. And then God shows up. And what is clear is that he came for her. And that he knows her name. And he records her name, not just in Joshua, but even in the genealogies to Jesus, to remind us that those he knows he doesn't forget. If God knows her name and her story, it makes me think that perhaps he knows my name. And he knows what I'm going through. And that's what Christmas is about. Christmas is for you, whoever you are. And so you should turn back to him and receive his mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for your mercy, your love and grace towards this woman, Rahab, who didn't deserve it. She belonged to a city of destruction. She had lived in sin, and yet you loved her, and it was your desire to rescue her. Thank you that that offer is on offer to us this morning. For those who have received it, we rejoice in it. And I ask, Father, that for those who are contemplating what this would mean for Jesus to be the true God, that you might help them to see what so many people in our city can't see. Make them restless until they get an answer to this question, whether Jesus is truly the Son of God. And we ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.